Knowing what you know now, what would you say to yourself? Bitcoin, oh, come on. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. <clears throat> of course, Bitcoin could crash tomorrow, but yeah, so Bitcoin and then sell at the top. Yeah, okay. So again, so, this is a, so introduce yourself to the table, at your table, and uh, if you could have a conversation with yourself 10 years ago, knowing what you know now, what would you say to yourself? See you in a few minutes. All right, let's take about another 30 seconds and we'll bring it back. How many of you are convinced that the stuff coming out of your mouth is the best thing you're going to hear today? <laughs> yeah, you're, you're like taking notes on yourself. This is incredible. All right, we'll have another time of icebreaker. You can finish your other one if, uh, if that, but let's, let's bring it back together. <clears throat> so let's just do a, a quick review here. We haven't, uh, actually haven't taught in Revelation in a little while between having service twice a month and all that other good stuff. So we're going to do a re little review. We're going through the book of Revelation, and the approach that we're taking is uh, right from the first verse, that it is a revelation of Jesus Christ, not the Antichrist. This is a book at the end of the Bible because it's a summary of redemption. It's not a uh, book of judgments and catastrophes. It's a book of redemption from judgment and catastrophes. 
I, I was just going to wait long enough, so thank you, Chris. If I pause too long, just give me an amen. That's actually what I'm looking for. So, This is not a book about what's coming to you. It's a book about what you've been redeemed from. Okay, the Bible, and then the second verse of Revelation chapter one, it says it's a book of signs and symbols. It says it was signified, it was symbolized to you. So a key to interpreting the uh, book of the Bi- uh, book of Revelation is recognizing that it's very symbolic in nature. So when you see a lamb, it's not talking about a woolly barnyard creature. It's a symbol for something else. Which leads us to our next principle: is that the key to interpreting the book of Revelation is the other sixty-five books of the Bible. It's not the newspaper. You're not reading the Bible in one hand with the newspaper in the other, and you're seeing all these fulfillments. I want you guys to get this. The book of Revelation was actually written to seven churches in Asia Minor that actually existed. And Jesus said, if you read this book and keep these words, you'll be blessed. It had to mean something to them. Imagine if I wrote a a letter to the Church of Columbus, and it didn't make sense for 2,000 years. Like, like it it would have complete irrelevance, right? It actually meant something back then, and the key to the book of Revelation was the Old Testament, or the other 65 books. And the final thing I want to get through is a revelation of Jesus to you will produce a revelation of Jesus through you. So when, you, when we see Jesus, the word revelation means unveiled, okay? And so, uh, you know, it's actually the word apocalypse, okay? And remember, we said a lot of people think the book of Revelation is the end of the world, but Jesus is actually trying to get you to the end of your world so you can get into his world. So as Jesus is unveiled, we become unveiled because when we see him, we become like him because we've been made one with him. Is that mysterious enough for you? You've been made one with the three in one. I'm not going to try to explain that one. I'm just going to try to believe it, all right? When we see him, we will be like him. So whoever God is to you, he will be, that is who he will be through you. I can always tell someone who's got an angry God theology. Have you met these people? Aren't they so fun at parties? <laughs> Arguing over which translation you should or shouldn't be reading and all these type of things, right? So whoever God is to you, he'll be through you. And so if God is love... You'll probably manifest the fruit of the Spirit. If it God's angry, you'll be uh, judging everyone's comments on Facebook. How are we doing? <laughs> Ask me how I know. I, I don't know if this is actually biblical, but one of my favorite things to do is just to block people off of Facebook. <laughs> it feels incredible. It's like, oh, a negative comment? Block. And that does not count as the persecution for your faith that Paul was talking about if someone blocks you, all right? You're like, oh, yeah, I understand that persecution. Someone blocked me. No, no. It's... All right. So Paul, or Paul, um, John, who is, is getting this message uh, you know, dictated to him from Jesus, he is writing to churches that are in a really weird transition time. For 1,500 years, they've been under the law. So they've been doing sacrifices, they've been keeping feasts, they've been, you know, worrying about what kind of clothes they wear and whether they touch something that's unclean and all these type of things. So they've been under the law, which we're going to see in a moment. You know what the law is? It's the ministry of death and the ministry of condemnation. That's what the Bible calls it. That's not like, Jim, you're being mean. No, that's what Paul, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, you know what that is? It's a ministry of death. So here's this this group of people, they're in this weird transition time because everything that they've known about approaching God has been changed in uh, three nails and a crown. Everything's been changed because of the cross of Jesus. So now they've got to learn this whole new way of, instead of living from the outside in, trying to obey rules, they're living from the Holy Spirit on the inside. Here's the thing, guys, under the New Covenant, he said he would write the law on your heart. So I, you try, I try to put some of these things together. The law is perfect. The law lasts forever. The law reveals God. So how can it be good? And then now it's the ministry of death. Here's the thing. is when the Holy Spirit came to live inside of you and you follow what he's telling you to do, you'll do everything that the law was after without any reference to the law. 
What was the law after? Love for God and love for people. So all those laws were basically trying to show people what it looked like to love God and love people. The problem is nobody could keep the law. And so you've got this interesting thing going on is you've got all these Jews who are now believers that are filled with the Holy Spirit, and then these Gentiles start getting saved. They're like, what do we do? Remember the house of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, and they're, they're having, you know, the Jerusalem councils arguing, what do we do with these Jews? Do we make them get circumcised? Do they have to keep kosher? You guys remember in this. So you can see they're battling through this. What do we do with this? And the book of Revelation is written to these people who are right in the middle of this transition, and he's giving them the information that they need, the revelation of Jesus they need to be able to walk in the new covenant. And it's almost as if Jesus gave them one generation to get this right. Okay, this isn't in the notes. I'm just going for a couple of things here. You guys all right? Remember there's some crazy stories where Jesus is like, uh, this generation it, uh, is going to see the temple destroyed. There won't be one stone left unturned. Remember, it's gonna, the whole thing's going to be destroyed. This generation, this generation is going to see that. It was 40 years after Jesus said that, which biblically was a generation that the temple was destroyed. It's literally like God's like the, the old covenant. I'm going to make it so you can't even keep it if you wanted to because the temple's gone. Okay, and so he's writing to these people, and he's, he's I mean, remember the whole, you know, one will be taken in the field, there'll be two men in bed, and one will be taken, and flee to this, remember that? That all happened, but isn't it interesting when he mentions that there's two men in bed? What's that all about? According to the Bible, there's only been two men in history, Adam and Christ. You're either in Adam or in Christ, and so the two men will be in bed. The one that will be taken will be the one in Christ. The other one will be left behind for all the destruction, which is exactly what took place. It's interesting, Josephus, we're going into some stuff here. All right, I'll get to the text in a second. Josephus was a historian in the late first century, early second century, and he wrote about events. Actually, actually, he was a first century. Um, and so he wrote about the events of the destruction of Jerusalem when the general Titus uh, came from Rome and uh, surrounded Israel, completely destroyed them. And it said, uh, he actually wrote in this that um, most of the Christians actually escaped to the hills. Actually, heeded the words of Jesus. Remember, he's like, if you see these things come and escape to the hills, it'd be better if you're not pregnant when all that's happening. They actually heeded the words of Jesus, avoided the destruction. Everything was taking place when the temple was destroyed. If you wonder if we're living in the last days, um, the last days started back in Pentecost. Everyone's like looking for all these signs about like the book of Revelation, like it's a whole bunch of signs of things to come. It is. It's the signs of things that already came. Jesus, he completely changed history. What did, what did Peter say? Uh, he stands up on the day of Pentecost. He sees people are speaking in tongues. People are like, what on earth is this? Are you guys drunk? Like, what's happening? He's like, this was, this was that which was spoken of. You have to use the King James on that. This is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit on the people who are good enough. No, that's not what he said. On all flesh, men, women, Jew, Gentiles. There's an interesting, crazy movement going on in Christianity where people are acting like you have to become Jewish again. And that makes you more spiritual. Can we just be real here for a second? God never called anyone to be Jewish. He called you to be a believer in his son. And you getting all the leaven out of your house on certain holidays and, uh, you know, doing whatever you think you have to do that sounds Jewish in Old Testament, that doesn't make you any closer to God. Now, let's say you do it and there's a devotional aspect to it and somehow it, it makes you think of Jesus more clearly and you see Jesus in it. Perfect. But you don't get points for doing it. God's not like, oh, that person's keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. I'm so proud of them, and I'm going to pour out my spirit a little extra on them. He doesn't care about your works. He cares about his son. You've been, that's the only thing that's pleasing to him. He's not like impressed with your behavior or depressed with your bad behavior. He's impressed with his son. 
That's why all those sacrifices in the Old Testament, it was a pleasing aroma. Why? Because it reminded them of his son. And it became an atonement, a covering upon them so that he treated them as if they were Jesus himself. All right, we're getting into a whole bunch of stuff here. You guys all right? I think we'd agree here that it's tragic that 2,000 years into the new covenant, we're still wrestling with these same paradigm shifts of people wanting to go back under the law. So how about this? I'm not sure if you noticed. I've been preaching on the new covenant for every Sunday for probably about three years now. I went back and looked. I'm like, it's literally the same message every single week from a different angle. In case you didn't notice, it's the same message. Okay, It's the new covenant. It's Jesus. And so uh, I don't think I'm going to change the subject. And so how about we get this thing right? How about if we actually begin to see ourselves from a new covenant perspective and live out of that? Okay, so we're going to see this church in Sardis. Let's look at them. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. Like, I'm passionate about this, guys. If we don't... Okay, we're going to get into all this. This is going to be so good. There's some good stuff coming. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. And to the angel of the church of Sardis, write... The words... Remember, these are seven churches. These are seven letters to seven churches. This is the fifth letter in the book of Revelation. Uh, And to the angel of the church of Sardis... Sardis was a city. Write... The words of him who has the seven spirits of God... And the seven stars. Let's hit the pause button. So in chapter one, we, we, uh, we were introduced to all these different aspects of Jesus. And one of them was that he had the seven spirits of God and the seven stars in his right hand. And so when, uh, now when Jesus is uh, going in, and he's introducing himself to the church again, he's taking an aspect of himself that they're going to need to be able to walk out their mission. Okay, so he's, he's reintroducing an aspect that we already woke up to in chapter one. He says this, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Okay, how would you guys like that prophetic word of your life? <laughs> I know there's, there's people who are like, oh, Jesus would, I mean, we literally had people leave the church because like, Jesus would never correct me in my sin. He's my good father. I'm like, have you read the Bible? <laughs> you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Verse 3, remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I come against you. I'm not going to really cover the thief thing, but I want you to remember that parable that he told about the, uh, about the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. He said he would come like a thief, and there would be two men in bed. One would be taken. That, that, that's that picture there. One will be in Adam. One will be in Christ. He's coming like a thief, and the one who is in Christ will be saved. Are we okay? Anyone confused? Verse 4, <clears throat> if you are, just, I come against the spirit of confusement. <laughs> Verse 4, yet you have, it, it'll make sense hopefully more. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. For the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments. Growing up, for some reason, I, I'm not saying it was the preachers I was under, but for some reason I had this picture that me having white garments had to do with my righteousness, with my works. Like I was spotting my garments with bad behavior, bad thoughts. And so I needed to make my garments clean. Did anyone else kind of have that thought for some strange reason? Okay. We're going to see that there's only one thing. I'm just going to cut it here. There's only one thing that makes your garments white, and it doesn't make any sense in the natural. It's washing them in the blood of Jesus. You can't like do spot remover. Like I said, ooh, get that one out. That's not what does it. What does it is you have been clothed with Christ. His white garment is the only thing, and it stays clean. 
unless you go back to dead works, which we're going to see here in a second. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says of the church. All right, let's just go, let's go through these here. The word sardis means those who have escaped or red ones, kind of like a picture of a jewel. Okay, so names are often significant in the Bible. And so I think this is such a beautiful picture of how we need to escape from every form of religious bondage on our journey into Christ-likeness. It's exactly what this church needed. By the blood of Jesus, we are redeemed and set free to be his fiery red ones like jewels before God. All right? So Jesus, he comes to his church, and before he has a pattern in these letters. Before he ever asks them to do anything, before he asks them to repent, he always reveals an aspect of himself that's going to give them the power and the strength to be able to walk in the thing he's asking them to walk in. And so he says this to the church in Sardis. He reveals two things of himself. He says he is the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Again, we learned about these in chapter 1. The seven spirits of God are not like seven different spirits. And so I, uh, I like how Brian Simmons translates it in the Passion Translation. It's the sevenfold spirit of God. It's a picture of something from Isaiah chapter 11. You guys remember the sevenfold spirit of God? We talked about this. Um, it was the, uh, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. Here's the sevenfold spirit of God. The spirit of the Lord, wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. That's the sevenfold spirit. It's a picture of seven aspects of the, of the Holy Spirit. And he's saying... The seven, and the seven stars, this is kind of going a little crazy here. The seven stars were the seven, every time I say an S, maybe I'll just stop saying S and put it down more, like that. Is that better? Seven. Seven. There we go. <laughs> Usually it's testing one, two, three, now it's going to be testing seven, seven, seven. <laughs> testing six, six, no, we can't do that one. <laughs> no, you, man, you get nasty Facebook comments for that one. So what were the, the, so he's saying, I have the seven spirits and I have the seven stars. The seven stars were the seven messengers to the churches. They were the, they were the supernatural ministry of, uh, that were in human form that God was sending to equip them to walk in everything that Jesus paid for. Okay, so he's saying, listen, I want to reveal myself to you as the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God so that everything you need to make this transition from the old covenant to the new covenant, you already have. Guys, I can't tell you how many Christians are begging Jesus through prayer for things that they already have. And so you're not praying, you're actually just declaring your unbelief. So what's he doing? He wants to reveal these things to us, what we have, and have us believe them. Guys, anything you think you have to do to get God's attention, to get him to move, to answer your prayers. I was just talking with someone today, and he said uh, he, was, he was believing for a miracle for a, um, someone in their family. And he said, man, I wish I just knew what I had to do to get God to do miracles. I said, bro, can I do some real talk to you? You just told me the problem. It's what you have to do to get God to do miracles. God has already done everything he's going to do. He's done. Remember, um, it is finished. He's not up there busy anymore. He completed everything at the cross. And so our job is to believe and receive or doubt and do without. <clears throat> so faith, you, how, how do you know if you're in faith? Faith focuses on what Jesus has done and holds on to that. Doubt begins to look at what I've done, what I have to do. Have I heard a testimony of this? I don't know about this. And Faith does, looks at everything but Jesus. See the difference? Are we all right? All right. Revelation 3.1, I know your works, and you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Here's what I'm going to do. I just set your tables real quick. What are some things that churches do that look alive, but 
but may not really be alive at all. This isn't a time to be critical, but maybe just look in your own experience. Maybe some things that you thought that, man, this is really a good sign. I'm really doing something good. And they could actually be good things I've done with the Lord, but... So let me, get, um, let me just give you a, an example. Uh, feeding the poor. And that looks like a good thing. But if you're doing it instead... Okay, just, just talk about it. I'm not going to give you the answer. Yeah. What are some things that churches do that look alive but may actually not be alive at all? Like, that's a live church. Maybe. All right, let's take about another 30 seconds. All right, let's bring it back together here. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Do you guys know you can have the appearance of being alive, but actually be dead? It's, it's, the zombie apocalypse is right here in the book of Revelation. Can you believe it here? I think sometimes we think alive means we have to shout and dance and have an upbeat church service. Listen, and I'm not against that, guys. My roots are Pentecostal. I love all that stuff. But yelling and shouting is not what makes a church alive. That's just a style or some people's personal preference for how they like ministry. Some people think the louder you preach and the more sweat you have, the more anointed you are. <laughs> Listen, guys, I've seen some sweaty preachers and there wasn't a lot of anointing. <laughs> I remember one time, uh, I don't, actually, my mom's here. Let's welcome Cheryl Baker. Yay, mom. Yay. <clears throat> so I don't know if you remember this. We were, it, was, uh, it was on spring break. We were down in Florida. And went to that church on Easter, and the preacher was also the saxophone player. And so I'm watching him, and he is saxophoning up a storm. 
And so he is losing weight, like, like he's up there. No lie. So he sweated so much, he got salt stains on his leather strap of his saxophone. So like he's sweating through the strap. I'm like, this is something to, this is something to see. And so as he gets up there and preaches, it was like he turned, he turned it on to another level. And so his thighs were getting sweaty through his suit. And then his tie started to get the drips. I'd never seen anything like it. And so we went back every year. Just, I was just fascinated. Anyway, that was not in the notes. But you know what, you guys, you can be busy doing good things. You can look alive and excited and shout and dance. And, you know, I had a preacher, a pastor of mine used to say, I don't care how high you sh- how Loud you shout and how high you jump, how straight are you going to walk when you're done? You can be busy doing good things. You can be feeding the poor and clothing the homeless and telling people about Jesus and doing good. But the difference between works and good works are works are something that you do in your own strength. Works are something that you do so that you can get on God's good side and please him and look what I'm doing and you're giving him reasons to bless you. A good work is something you do because it's out of your identity. This is who I am. And it's done in his strength. So Jesus, he's going to first address them about their works. Verse 6. Oh, you know what? Actually, I'm not going to do that. How could this church be dead? You're like, like, they're doing all these things. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 through 11. This is absolutely incredible. Uh, Jesus, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. One way to know whether or not you're sitting under a new covenant ministry or an old covenant ministry is the old covenant ministry is killing you. It's sucking the life out of you, okay? The other one's giving you life. Verse 7, now if the ministry of death, car- yeah. now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, speaking of the Ten Commandments, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, look at the language he's using it. The, spirit, the letter kills, right? It's the ministry of condemnation. The ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Verse 10, indeed, in, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of all the glory that surpasses it. For what was being brought to an end came with glory. Much more will that what is permanent have glory. The church of Sardis, it seems to be alive. They, maybe they're doing good things. They've got zeal. They're known as like the happening place in town. But the truth is life was running out of them. We're, we are still in this paradigm shift. You do not have to live in that ministry of condemnation, that ministry of death. When you think that following Jesus is about the rules, about not doing the bad stuff and doing more of the good stuff, it will suck the life out of you. What I hate to see is that as new believers, they get excited for the Lord, and then they, go to, they sit under a ministry where they're getting, old, they're getting told, basically, they're trying to improve Adam. <laughs> You're a sinner saved by grace. Try not to sin as much and try to do more good stuff. And so every week, it's about sin. And here's, here's all the things that we're against, and the list gets longer every single week. What's that? That'll kill you. That's the ministry of death. You can have good people who, loved, who love the real Jesus but they're under that ministry, and it'll kill them. How are we doing? And what do you do? You start thinking, listen, I'm not making it. <laughs> I am not doing good with the Lord. People say, how are you doing with the Lord? You begin to look at your track record from the previous seven days. Well, I haven't really read the Bible much. I haven't fasted in like a year. I did miss that one meal, but I didn't even pray during that time. And <sighs> He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. And I hope that I die during one of the he loves me times. Are we all right? 
And so people, what do they do? They feel like they got to get, they got to get born again, again, every single week. And instead of eternal security, they have eternal insecurity. Listen, guys, your salvation is not as volatile as the stock market, which goes up based on human emotion and speculation and goes down based on the same thing. And so does Bitcoin, whoever said that over there, all right? Let's look at Revelation again, chapter 3. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. die. For I have not found your works complete. Another way you could say it, I have not found your works perfect in the sight of my God. God's not looking for good, good effort. You know, God, God knows I'm trying. He's not impressed by your effort. He wants the works to be perfect. And the only thing that makes them perfect is when you do them recognizing that you've been clothed with Christ. I'm righteous before him. I'm not doing this to please him. I'm doing it because I'm pleased with him, because he's pleased with me. I'm not working for favor. I'm working from favor. Imagine a child working in the yard trying to get their dad's affection versus they already know dad loves them. And so now they're going out and just doing those acts of service out of love, not out of earning. People in love will do more than people under the law. This isn't an excuse to be lazy. This isn't like, oh, I don't have to do anything to please God. Sweet. Just sit back and binge watch. No. People who are in love do more out of love than they ever do out of law. And I, yet, yet you still have a few... Where am I at? Verse, verse 3. Remember then what you received and heard. I love, I love his solution to this thing. It isn't act better, shape up. It's remember what you've received and heard. Go back to the basics. Go back to what Jesus says about you. Verse 4, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. I love him talking about the garments here. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out their name from the book of life. The uh, seventh church in the book of Revelation, we'll look at two more times, the church of Laodicea. Jesus tells them that they're naked and they don't know it. The church in Sardis, they're not naked, but there's many people wearing dirty garments. Unclean clothes are, are not acceptable to God. <clears throat> this is a metaphor, okay, for those of you in junior high. Um, un- unclean clothes are not acceptable to God. His, his garment always must remain clean. Garments are always a picture of what you're trusting in. Listen to Revelation 19, verses 7 through 8. So this is Revelation 3, we're talking about garments, and let's look at how he interprets this symbol later in the book. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Okay. The issue to the church is, where are you going to get your righteousness from? Is it from your works and great behavior, or is it from the righteous deeds of Christ? Jesus tells them, I have not found your works complete. The whole concept here is you have a white garment of righteousness. Are you recognizing it, or are you going back to good works and soiling your garments? Are you guys seeing the picture? The way that you soil your garments is not by sinning. It's by trusting in your own works. It's by going back under the law. It's by thinking I have to do things to please Christ when Christ is already pleased with me because of what he has done. That's how you soil your garments. Listen to Revelation 19, 14. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on a white horse. Keeping your clothes clean is essential for every Christian. 
Okay? Anything that's unclean can't come into his presence. And so what is it that makes it unclean? Let's look at Revelation 22:14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they have the right to the tree of life and they may enter the city by his gates. So it's only these people with clean garments that can enter into the kingdom of heaven. Okay? So here's the question. How do you wash your robe? I know I'm, I'm cutting through some stuff. I hope you guys are getting it here. Revelation 7, 14. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. What's going on here? You've got these people in Sardis. They look alive, but they're dead. And their garments are soiled. Why are they soiled? Because they're trying to do things in human effort. They're going back under the law. They're going back under this ministry of condemnation. Guys, this, like Paul, most of Paul's letters are dealing with these type of things. And here it is in the book of Revelation. This is the opposite of the picture in Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become contaminated with sin, and you see our self-righteousness as nothing better than a menstrual rag. Anyone have that one written on their fridge? <laughs> the Old Testament prophets predicted a day when God would perfectly clothe his people. I'm not sure if you realize this. Clothing is mentioned in every book of the Bible. Every book of the Bible, from Adam and Eve being clothed by the, um, the bloody skins of the animal, that was the, that was the first covenant, to the, uh, you know, the priestly garments, to Boaz covering Ruth, like all of these things, every picture is a picture, it's, it's these different aspects of what it looks like for us to be completely clothed in Christ. Listen to Isaiah 61.10, he has clothed me with the garments of salvation, he has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Romans 13, 14, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. So keeping your garments clean is not what I have to do to get sin out of my life. Listen, guys, when you recognize that you're righteous, you'll live more holy on accident than you ever could on, your, on purpose with your own self-efforts. You've got an addiction. You've got something that you're struggling with. What do you need to do? You need to see yourself differently. It's a matter of identity. You'll always act out of how you see yourself. If you believe you're a sinner saved by grace... If you believe you're just a sinner saved by grace, you will sin by faith because you see yourself as a sinner. All right. Keeping your garments clean is not trying to get sin out of your life. It means I will not be swayed and drawn back into that old covenant mentality that brings the ministration of death, the ministry of death, and sucks the life out of me. Jesus is saying to the church in Sardis, you need to repent. You need to change your thinking. You need to remember what you have. Hold fast to what you have. You've been given this robe of righteousness. Don't soil it with your own human efforts. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to convict you of your righteousness. Most people think the Holy Spirit sent in your life to rub your nose in your sin. And the closer you get to God, I mean, I, don't, I used to believe this, that the closer I get to God, the more unworthy I see myself as. How can you ever get close to God if you see yourself as unworthy? Right? You boldly come before the throne of human performance. No, no. You can only boldly come before the throne of grace. If the closer you're getting to God, the more horrible you're seeing yourself, you're under the ministry of death. The only way you're going to get closer to God is to see, himself as, to see yourself as he sees you, clothed in a robe of righteousness. Imagine the guts it would take to stand in the mirror. It's actually not guts. It's just faith. And say, I am the righteousness of Christ. I am as righteous as Jesus is. I don't know if you guys know this. You are as righteous right now as you will be after a million years burning in his glory in heaven. You're not going to be any more righteous than you are right now. You might have a greater revelation of it, 
But from God's perspective, it won't be any more true. All right, I'm going to use one final picture here, and I hope this gets it through. I learned this, I learned this picture from Lynn Hiles. It's just brilliant. Luke chapter 8, verses 41 through 43. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he, had only, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. And Jesus went, and the people pressed around him. So he's going to heal this guy's daughter. Verse 43, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. How old was the little girl? How long uh, had this woman been bleeding? Okay, this is going to be key here. And she was dying. As Jesus went out, the people pressed him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living, all she had on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Now, this is obviously a true story, but we know in Scripture often it's symbolic. So the woman with the issue of blood powerfully pictures the church. The woman's not bleeding from her nose. She's bleeding from the place of intimacy. She's bleeding from the place she should be birthing. And life was running out of her just like it was at the church of Sardis. So she's bleeding to death, ready to die over this matter of righteousness. What did she do? She tried everything in her own human effort. She tried all the physicians, everything she had. She tried the best that man could do. Listen, I know there's churches, uh, there's people in churches all over the world that spent everything they have on formula after formula, ritual after ritual. If I can just do this kind of devotional, if I can just fast this long, if I can just be hungry enough for God. They've tried everything week after week, and it's sucking the life out of them. I'm not sure if you ever uh, watched those commercials, but it's, it's, it's odd it's like how, how sometimes they happen in this order. I remember I was watching it, and it was like a, uh, it was a commercial for a cheeseburger. And then, you know, they try to make the cheeseburgers look healthy, but it's like, yeah, good luck for that. So it was like cheeseburger dripping with fat. And it was like, okay, the next commercial was like a pill that you can eat, that you can take, so it stops the cholesterol from basically the commercial right before it. And literally the next commercial was the lawyer who was going to, uh, who was going to help you file a lawsuit from the side effects from the pill that you were taking from the commercial I feel like that's kind of like religion. It just key, it has these side effects, you know? I mean, yeah, I, mean, I know we all do this. We all watch the commercial. Like, I will literally slow down a drug commercial like I'm fast-forwarding through it just to listen to the side effects. It's like, are you kidding me? Are you, like, like the side effects, anytime one of the side effects is possible death, like, is it worth it so that your hair doesn't turn gray or something like that? It's like, it's never worth it. It's like, here's these side effects. Your feet are going to fall off, you know, and your kidneys are going to drop out on the ground, you know, it's all these type of, type of things. And that's religion. It's like we keep trying to treat the side effects. We keep trying to treat the side effects and take authority over the side effects when it's like we got to go back to the root of this thing. The root of this thing is the law of Moses, the ministry of condemnation. And here's this woman. She's bleeding from the place she should be birthing. And when you touch someone who's bleeding like that, you become unclean under the law. The law said, listen, this, when this person touches Jesus, Jesus becomes unclean. Let's look at verse 44. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and, he, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, master, the crowds surround you and are pa- and pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. I love that. I think the King James says virtue has gone out from me. I love that. Power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. I love that. For I perceive that power has, come, has gone out for me. Under the new covenant, when you are unclean 
and you touch Jesus, you become clean. Under the old covenant, when you're unclean and you touch somebody who's clean, they become unclean. But I love this, the 2 Corinthians 5 to 1. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Guys, this is incredible. Exchange has come place. It's taken place. We're unclean, but when we touch Jesus, we become whole. We become clean. We become righteous. Everything that you're looking for. It's interesting that Jesus was um, not on his way to heal this woman. Where was Jesus on his way? He was on his way to heal the next generation. If the woman's the church, bleeding for... Someone's starting to get here. I haven't even got there yet. The child was 12 years old and was dying. And actually, we're going to see here in just a second that the news gets to the father and says, um, the girl's already dead. What's Jesus' solution? Well, you better pray. You better fast. You better get all this in. He says, only believe. The whole access to the new covenant is only believe. Here's what's going on, guys. A lot of people are worried about the next generation. I am too, but here's what God says. He says, uh, the church is bleeding from the place they should be birthing. They're struggling with this issue of righteousness. But and God, he wants to go and raise up the next generation. But as soon as the church gets this issue right, he goes and the power of the resurrection is released and that next generation is raised up in an instant. But God cannot have this new generation coming to a place that hasn't taken care of these birthing issues, hasn't taken care of these righteousness issues. Um, it's interesting. He goes and he raises this girl up and he says, give her something to eat. He didn't say give her milk to drink. Hebrews says that milk is for those who don't understand righteousness. She was ready to eat. Guys, if this next generation hears the message that they are the righteousness of God in Christ, they'll be ready for meat. God will not let us teach the world the thing that's been killing us. You need to cut your hair. You need to stop swearing. You need to not wear makeup or jewelry. You can't go to movies. You shouldn't do mixed bathing. All these rules that people are putting on. You're not hungry. Okay, that was, maybe that doesn't relate to you, but in our circles, it's you're not hungry enough. You're not desperate enough. God only answers the truly desperate, right? How do you ever know if you're hungry enough? So if people are doing these things and trying to make themselves more hungry and show God that they're hungry. It's man's best attempt at righteousness, and God always says it's like filthy menstrual rags. It's not about getting yourself clean and righteous that allows you to touch Jesus. It's touching Jesus that makes you clean and righteous. And as soon as the church gets healed, the next generation was raised up in an instant. It's interesting, though, we didn't read it, I accidentally skipped it. But they come and tell Jesus that the daughter has died, and what does Jesus say? She's not dead, she's just sleeping. Isn't that interesting? I'm just here to tell you that this, this emerging generation, they're not dead, they're just sleeping. Somebody's about to wake them up, and when Jesus walks into that room and says, daughter, arise, they're going to be ready to eat. The righteousness you have is a gift. And so let me just ask you this. I'm not trying to be mean, but what part of gift do you not understand? I want you guys to get it. It is a gift of righteousness. Paul said this in Romans 5.17. He says that when you um, receive an abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness, you'll reign in life. Over every circumstance, you'll have authority like a king. How? Because you're good enough? Because you've got enough scriptures memorized? Because you're recognizing, I need his grace, and I've received the gift of righteousness, so I have full access to everything Dad paid for. 
Here's righteousness in one, one picture. Righteousness is a realm that you've entered into where God is no longer dealing with you based on your behavior. He's dealing with you based on Jesus' behavior. Isn't that interesting? Righteousness is a realm that you've entered into where God is no longer dealing with you based on your behavior. He's dealing with you based on Jesus' behavior. I'm here to tell you, you've been washed, you've been cleansed, and you've been made holy. God calls you saints, holy ones, and partakers of his divine nature. What if you began to look in the mirror when no one else was around? You can shut the door. You don't have to say it loudly. What if you began to look in the mirror and you began to say these things yourself and you began to attach your faith to it? God, so there has to be a church that gets this thing right. And I just say, why not us? Amen. Why not be the church that actually, the place of intimacy and the place of birthing, we get that thing healed up? Where our righteousness is no longer... It's interesting, the filthy rags, the spotting of the garments, I mean, it all kind of just pictures together here. We stop trying to please God, and we just give up and say, God, what you did is enough. We begin to live from that. When temptation comes, you're going to say, you know what? That's not who I am. I'm standing before the Lord in white. I've been given a white linen garment, and I'm going to watch and guard and keep it. I don't want to have it spotted and dirty. I want to stand before the Lord in white. And how do you do that? By always remembering that what he did was enough. And I believe that, and I receive that life, and I go into life like that. What if the next tough situation you face this week, you approached as a son or daughter rather than as a slave and a beggar? Final thing, here's what he promises in Sardis. This is just a thought. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. God doesn't have your name written down in a book because he can't remember it. <clears throat> so here's a thought. What if there's only one name written in the book of life, and it's Jesus? And there's only one name that gets blotted out, and it's Adam. From God's perspective, there's only two, two men who've ever existed, Adam and Jesus. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. In Adam, curses, hot mess, sin nature. In Christ, you become the righteousness of Christ. The only name that gets confessed throughout the Bible is the name of Jesus. So when he says... I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. What if your name's already in there because Christ's name is in there and you are in him? Something to think about. How are we doing? Here's what I want to do. I want you guys to close your eyes for a moment and take out your wallet. No, I'm just kidding. It's sorry. <laughs> I want you to close your eyes for a moment. I want you to imagine yourself before Christ. Maybe he's standing before you. Maybe he's on a throne. Whatever that looks like to you. How do you feel? How do you see yourself? Are you remembering your weak moments or shame from your past? Or do you see yourself clothed in a beautiful robe of righteousness of Christ? Do you have this feeling, God, I wish that's who I really was? And God is saying back to you, you already are, you just need to believe it. You believe there's still something wrong with you that makes you feel like you can't approach God. Do you feel like there's something dirty or broken or wrong with me? 
you feel like sometimes you have to do something to get God to love you? Do you feel like sometimes you have to do something to get God to answer your prayer? And I've got some good news for you. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Here's what I want you to do. Whatever revelation you have, ask God to to help you see yourself as he sees you wrapped in a robe of righteousness. Any of that shame-based thinking that you had, I want you to just surrender it to the Lord. Say, God, I can't get rid of this on my own. I'm giving this to you. So, Lord, we exercise our faith right now, and we put on those robes of righteousness. Lord, I thank you that before you we are white, we are clean, we are pure, we are welcomed, we are loved. Lord, I just thank you we are not defined by our history or by our weakest moment. We're defined by Jesus' history and his best moments. Well, I'm just going to say that over you guys again. You are not defined by your history or your weakest moment. You're defined by Jesus' history and his best moments. I just declare over you, God delights to treat you as if you were Jesus himself. Because you're in his son. So Lord, I just thank you for a grace this week to remember that we are dressed in robes of righteousness. We're not going to spot our garments by trying to please you. We're going to work from favor rather than for favor. So unveil this to us, Lord. In the name of Jesus, amen. Here's what I want to do. I want to take the last few minutes and just have you guys pray at your tables for the next generation. And so um, I, the, there's...